You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I am Kyla Lee at Acumen Law, and with me, my co-host, Paul Doroshenko. Hello, Kyla. How are you doing? I'm not bad. We're recording this at the office, and we were going to record it in our studio, but uh, now we're not. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it's not the, the, there's not a whole lot of noise down there, but um, yeah, I uh, just don't feel like sitting in the... I'd rather sit on the sofa here in your office, frankly, plus it's the... Full day. It's a little quieter up here generally. Your dog's here, and he'd be scratching at the door of the studio if we were in there, and we'd have to keep the door closed. Yeah. I don't know. It feels like a um, dramatic day somehow for me. I'm not sure why. There's lots going on. I guess the release of your new uh, new cover of uh, Bob Dylan. Don't think twice. It's all right. That's been a big thing this week. Yeah, that's been fun. Um, but yeah. Uh, let's get right into it because this week has been dramatic for driving. Has it? Yeah, snowfall in the Lower Mainland, which totally uh, messes up traffic and uh, got me in a new story, which was fun. Yeah, well, um, it was a good quote from you there. Yeah, I said that everybody's stupid with their cars sometimes. So if you... That's the reason we have insurance. I yeah. suppose accidents happen, but very often it's people doing something dumb. But I thought we could talk about sort of some of the driving law issues that are engaged when we have big snowfalls like this, because obviously there's a lot of accidents, which leads to a lot of injuries. Um, there's also issues with respect to highway maintenance and um, legal issues about who has the responsibility for clearing the roads. There's a lot that really goes into roads and highways. So what you're telling me is this is really a lower mainland Vancouver Island episode, because in the rest of Canada... They have all of these things sorted out. It doesn't seem novel. Well, well, they have them sorted out, but, you know, they, they still have the same issues with accidents and insurance that we do. And this is sort of the first major snowfall in British Columbia since um, we've changed our, um, since we've changed our insurance system. True. And uh, people were apparently even more unprepared than they usually are. And we have this discussion every time at the beginning of the year when there's a snowfall and there's a bunch of people driving around with snow t- with uh, all season, bald all season tires. Yeah. So the, the article that I was interviewed in asked a really good question, which is, are you in breach of your ICBC insurance policy if you don't get snow tires? And I know what the answer you gave is, but um, <laughs> you were sitting the, there when I gave my interview. Well, because I, I know what the answer is, but the uh, the problem is, I mean, should there be some higher onus on people? I mean, you, no, you're not in breach. You'd have to demonstrate some really extreme level of negligence, I think, on that basis to to find a breach on the tires that you've got. And I don't think you would get there uh, because ICBC. The whole idea is, as you said in that article, is people do stupid things including driving on tires that they are sometimes unaware of are unsafe and driving vehicles that sometimes they are unaware of have a mechanical problem. But it wouldn't be impossible for ICBC to write into the insurance contract a condition that required you to put on snow tires if you're driving on certain highways at certain parts times of the year. No, but I don't think that they would. Uh, I don't think that they would do that. I think it would be viewed as fundamentally unfair. There's lots of people who are 
living on the margins who don't have that money, aren't anticipating it, are struggling to get hires that are decent at any given time, who are pushing it just a little bit further than they should. I mean, I know that there's people who have absolute slicks, but I will tell you a story. My first <laughs> car was a Honda Civic made in the 70s. Mm -hmm. And uh, I love that car and I still dream about it. Um, and I had bald tires on it. And it was fantastic in the snow with those bald tires. I could drive through a foot deep snow. Uh, it was just such a well-designed car. It handled the snow very well. Um, so, you know, every vehicle, of course, is different too. Um, and some tires are just better designed than others. I've had Michelins and every pair of set of Michelins I've ever had have been great. I've had Pirellis. Uh, and uh, it was as dangerous in the summertime as wintertime driving on those Pirellis. Go around the corner, you're ready to slide off the road. I Any find, speed. I find it funny, just to completely change the topic from your story, which is a great story, but I find it funny that you're thinking that ICBC wouldn't change the insurance contract to require you to have winter tires. They wouldn't do it because that would be unfair. Since when has fairness ever stopped ICBC from doing anything? No, I think it would be viewed unfair to um, the many people who are struggling in this province to make ends meet. And I think it would be viewed as an attack on, on poor people. Um, and so I, I don't think that's something that the NDP would want to do. And I don't think it's something that the BC Liberals would want to do. Um, I just <laughs> think that, uh, you know, it would be one of those things that would just... Um, call ICBC further into disrepute and questioning. And people are, you know, understandably suspicious of ICBC um, <laughs> and understandably, you know, wondering whether or not we could be better served from a, um, a private system. And ICBC perpetually has to be up against that, um, that milieu, that, that, that <laughs> perpetual issue that they are facing <laughs> about, um, about people being <coughs> distrustful of socialized car insurance. Um, and so I don't think that that's something they would do because I think it would just make them look uh, so heavy-handed and, uh, and like such jerks. And can you imagine, you know, how crushing that would be to some people if they have an accident, you know, they've got one tire there, two tires they were unaware were didn't meet whatever the standard was that ICBC had set out. And, you know, next thing you know, they lose their home. And their families thrown into poverty. You know, ICBC is never going to do it. They're never going to do it. Well, how does no fault play into the determinations that ICBC is going to be making about these massive number of injury and accident claims? <clears throat> yeah, I, heard, I heard the number on the radio. Yeah, <laughs> it was huge. Gigantic. I can't remember how many it was, but I was, <clears throat> oh my gosh, our, our rates are going up. Yep. My rates have been going down, 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 down. And of course, I have many cars. But, um, but yes, they're going up. But the new no-fault system really doesn't pay you that much money, right? You no longer have the right to sue. The, the vast majority of these people in these accidents, as a result of the snow, are not going to have been charged with criminal offenses. It was mostly commuters trying to get home from work. Yep. As I read, part of the problem was people decided to leave work early um, because they were concerned about uh, getting home because it was snowing, and everybody 
thinking the same thing ended up clogging up traffic on the major routes, so the snowplow equipment couldn't get out there to plow the roads, so people actually caused a bigger hazard by trying to leave early to avoid the hazard, which ended up leaving snarls of traffic that lasted until like 4.30 in the morning. So the key is to leave extra early? Or just to sleep in your office? I think the key is to leave at the regular time so that the snowplows can plow the roads. Yeah, I don't know that I buy that theory. Or don't, you know, don't go in if you can work from home. I think, this is just, I think that's just a, a way of blaming commuters. Maybe. We, we don't have the equipment in the lower but main line to the, clear the roads as fast as we should. So that's the majority of the commuters that ended up in these accidents and things like that. They're not people who were impaired. They're not people who were driving dangerously. They're not people who are being charged with criminal offenses related to their driving. So what does ICBC pay out? Basically, your meat chart amount for how much you get based on the type of injury you have, you know, your couple thousand dollars for your soft tissue damage, nothing for your pain and suffering or anything like that. Um, lost income, if you lost any income, and most of those people probably only lost work as a result of taking the next day off because they didn't get home until four o'clock in the morning, as opposed to losing work due to injuries. Um, ICBC's not actually going to have to pay out that much in injury claims. So while you say, I'm worried about my rates going up, I think they, you know, they've already done enough with eliminating your right to sue and your right to get compensation, that this isn't going to cost that much. I, I'm concerned about repairing all those vehicles more than oh, the injury yeah. compl- That's claims. Be um, because all the video you're watching, most of them are fairly low speed collisions. Lots of times it's collisions, unfortunately, though, of parked cars. Did you see the one of the tow truck in the front of a house? No. Um, there was a photograph of a tow truck that had slid down a driveway somewhere, and I think it was in Coquitlam, and had gone through the front door of a house. So those are the things that ICBC is going to be paying out for. Sounds like and a ridiculous driver of the that, week. <laughs> that could have been our ridiculous driver of the week. That's true. I mean, how when do you see a tow truck? But you know what? Tow trucks, most of them, rear-wheel drive. So, I mean, they have uh, uh, one-ton rear axles and dually tires in the back. But, again, rear-wheel drive. Also, a lot of, apparently, transit buses were not properly equipped to handle the snow. They didn't have snow tires and things like that. And that's a different layer of exposure because that exposes you to workplace negligence claims. Yeah, I know. But again, that those are so heavily capped that uh, <laughs> they don't have to worry too much about it. You know, covered by WorkSafe BC, unless you get to the criminal responsibility, criminal negligence level. Um, and well, I don't think you're, you're getting there um, in the lower mainland with uh, not the best tires on the bus. But we knew the snow was coming. I don't know. I think there's perhaps an arguable case for some negligence on the part of transit operators um, and the transit company, Um, you know, whether it rises to the level of criminal negligence, but I don't know. I don't think there's anything that's actionable beyond the apparatus that's there for uh, potential workplace injury. But honestly, how many bus drivers were injured and how many passengers were injured? That, again, is one of those things where it's exceptionally low speed. I saw a bunch of buses that were, you know, jammed uh, and couldn't get up the hills on 4th, either side going up into the hill in Kits, and there was no real damage to any of those buses. I don't think you're going to see any particularly damaged bus accidents. But I was thinking at the time, we used to have an, an ad with your face on the back of a bus. Yeah, wouldn't um, it be but, bad if my face crashed into somebody? Yeah, I was th- just thinking about uh, how, it, how it looks when your 
you know, end up collided uh, <laughs> when your bus slides back at you and have, have Kyla Lee coming sliding back into my car of the hill on fourth. Yeah, when you're stuck <clears throat> in those uh in those those places where the bus is spin out and you're sitting there staring at the back of the bus. Yeah. That'll develop some bad will. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, okay, our second topic t- today is actually an interesting case because we've talked a few times before um, about issues related to um, uh, issues related to searching vehicles that are being impounded, and what's commonly known in law as an inventory search. So, when the police are impounding a car. Um, they are entitled to conduct what is known as an inventory search. And the BC Court of Appeal has been like, there's no constitutional violation with an inventory search. It's totally lawful. And that's kind of gone to the police's heads in resulting in police essentially conducting... Digging through people's yeah, cars, like yeah. all through people's cars. Every like, like basically doing like a, a, cranny, bo- a border crossing. Yeah. You think there's contraband in the hidden in the gas tank, tearing it apart. Yeah. So the Nova Scotia (coughs) Court of Appeal has uh, tried to shut this down. Uh, The Nova Scotia Court of Appeal, in a case called Myers, um, dealt with a case where somebody was stopped, their vehicle was impounded for some Motor Vehicle Act infractions there, and the officer conducted an inventory search. But among the things that the officer searched in the vehicle that uh, was being impounded was the backpack belonging to Mr. Myers. Now, Mr. Myers was entitled to take his backpack with him, even though the car was being impounded. And he, the, the officer never gave him an opportunity to collect his belongings before doing the inventory search. Of course, if something's not going with the car, it's not part of the inventory. So Mr. Myers um, challenged that search, arguing that that went beyond the scope of a permissible inventory search. And the Nova Scotia Court of Appeal agreed Uh, They found uh, that while the inventory search was appropriate, it was not conducted in a reasonable manner because the scope of an inventory search can only apply to the contents of the vehicle that will be remaining with the vehicle after it's taken into police custody or control. It does not give the police this wide-ranging right to search personal belongings unrelated to the investigation that occupants may wish to remove from the vehicle. So if your vehicle's being impounded because you got a DUI, does not give the police the right to search your backpack. Now, if they're searching your backpack incident to your arrest for evidence of alcohol or drugs that might be evidence of impairment, that would be lawful. So it doesn't, I don't think this case goes as far as we would like it to. It's not providing you with some some huge shield of protection of being searched. But if your vehicle is being impounded and there's items in there that you're collecting, you're entitled to collect those items before they do an inventory search. And the inventory search should be just that. Like it's not a, it's, it's not intended to um, be an investigative search. Mm-hmm. It is intended to be, I guess, in essence, um, protection from the allegation that something has been taken mm-hmm. down the road. Yes. So it's part of ensuring that you're, you, what you are seizing um, is properly recorded. Yeah. Now, obviously, like, really, this case just emphasizes the need for police officers when they're conducting searches to know for every search that they do and every search within a search 
the scope of their legal authority and what authority applies to the search that they're conducting. And to consider as they're conducting the search that they should be looking to be minimally intrusive, mm-hmm. that they should be avoiding trying to conduct um, some, uh, some sort of investigation that is beyond the normal scope. Mm-hmm. They have to be cognizant of charter rights all of the time. Yep. And this is a fascinating thing because you and I have noticed this um, problem um, with police in British Columbia. You probably wouldn't notice with police outside of the province. And it is, again, one of these things that is the downside of the immediate roadside prohibition scheme is that the police have felt emboldened or have not been cautioned often enough mm-hmm. by our courts because we don't have impaired driving cases going to court like we used to. Um, that we're seeing police officers who don't know what a search is. Mm-hmm. They don't know all of those different little things that can be a search. Yep. And, you know, early in my career, obviously, we, you know, Section 8 has always been at play, right? Throughout mm-hmm. my, but Section 8 is now at play like it's never been in the cases that are coming through our office, the criminal cases that are coming through our office, where we just see police officers completely oblivious to the fact that they're conducting a search and it's going to develop a lot of case law that they're not going to like. It's going to clarify the law and it's going to be good, but it's going to develop a lot of case law that they don't like. And this is a good example. Speaking of interesting legal developments, um, there's also an interesting case that came out of the Saskatchewan Court of Appeal. And this is one to watch because it is probably going to go to the Supreme Court of Canada. So this is about criminal negligence causing bodily harm. Uh, Sorry, yeah, criminal negligence causing death and criminal negligence causing bodily harm in the context of a motor vehicle act. Now, as you know, those are both sort of catch-all offenses where any type of criminal negligence can fall within that. So you don't need to be in a car and negligent in a car um, criminally to be charged with that. But it's often used in cases where there's really dangerous driving behavior. Yes. And there was some question after the amendments to the criminal code in 2018 that um, suggested that perhaps judges no longer have discretion to impose a criminal driving prohibition as part of a sentence, absent like doing so under a probation order for criminal negligence offenses because the amendments are supposed to create an exhaustive and insulated regime for dealing with driving offenses. And unlike, you know, the old 259 prohibition orders um, that were like a standalone prohibition that could be ordered under any section, the the um, 320.29 prohibition orders are different. And they refer to specific offenses and the judge's ability to order the prohibitions for specific offenses. So the question was, does a judge retain the ability to issue a driving prohibition for criminal negligence causing death or bodily harm in cases where there is bad driving that forms the basis of the criminal negligence? And well, now I want to know what happened. Yeah. You piqued my interest here because I, I have my own idea about it, but go ahead. So the Ontario Superior Court said... Uh, it, um, uh, it, it, it did, and it imposed a uh, 10-year driving prohibition. Um, and the accused relied on an Ontario Court of Appeal decision in a case called Boily 
that said that it doesn't, they don't have the authority to do it. But the Saskatchewan Court of Appeal said they do have the authority to do it. They disagreed. They failed to follow the Ontario Court of Appeal judgment. That's unusual. Yeah. And <laughs> imposed a tenure or upheld the tenure driving prohibition. So that's fascinating because we have two competing uh, court, court of, of appeal, appeal decisions, decisions yeah. on something pretty fundamental. <laughs> so this is one to watch. It's going to go to the Supreme Court of Canada. going to be very, very interesting. It is going to be fascinating. All right. Look forward to that one. So we had to take a little break here because there was a question as to whether or not one of us had to be in a meeting. Anyway, so it turns out we didn't, and we're back. Um, and I want to talk a little bit about that case, and I think it's probably you know, wise to read them both and look at it. It's clearly going to the Supreme Court of Canada if you've got two courts of appeal um, Well, also, deciding. It's, it's also like such a significant issue. Well, the ability of a judge to impose a sentence is the type of thing that is of national importance. Yes, uh, but the thing is, there has been this discretion of a judge to impose uh, conditions that are lawful for forever. Right. And the only issue really comes down to whether or not the conditions or the provisions in the changes to the criminal code from that came into effect December 18th, 2018 and thereabouts, um, eliminate that authority um, when it comes to other provisions of the code. Yeah. And my suspicion is that the Supreme Court of Canada is going to say that discretion is not taken away from a judge at sentencing. Yeah. Um, that is that is where I think it'll go, and I think the Saskatchewan Court of Appeal is probably right. Um, but, um, you know, talk about, like, confidence in the justice system overall. We've got two different courts of appeal going different directions. I mean, if people were paying attention to it, and, and thinking to themselves, okay, well, we live in a society guided by laws and the lawyers must know what <laughs> the answers are and, and the courts must, you know, know figure nothing. it out. Basically, it, it leads me to conclude that uh, some things are very certain, many things are really uncertain, um, and decisions that were made by the court 20 years ago will be completely different 20 years from now. Yeah. Uh, and the consistency of it um, does not inspire confidence. However, um, that vagueness of it is kind of a human thing. I, I, I like this case because I think if Parliament screwed up and they didn't give judges the authority to impose a standalone like driving prohibition... Obviously, it can be done as part of a probation order, but, I mean, you're not going to justify 10 years of probation for a person just to limit their driving in these types of cases. But the Crown is not hamstrung. If you can prove criminal negligence causing death or bodily harm, you can prove dangerous driving causing death or bodily harm. So just True, charge the, the lesser just... offense if, you, if the driving prohibition is that important to you. If that's what the Crown's seeking. Um, of course, a judge at sentencing could impose a driving prohibition even if nobody's seeking it. Yes. Um, but uh, I, I would just be shocked if that discretion is taken away from a judge at sentencing, especially when we're talking about ensuring judges have a wider range of discretion to craft a sentence that is appropriate in the circumstances. The other thing but that I... we I, should explain quickly what the probation order version is because not everybody who's listening to the podcast will understand that. What do you mean the probation order version? So a, a judge can make a probation order that uh, essentially prohibits a person from driving rather than it being a driving prohibition. 
So during the course of probation, the judge could say, you know, for the next year, you're on probation, and the probation order includes that you not be in the driver's seat of a motor vehicle. It's an end run, mm -hmm. um, and it's a method of doing it. And sometimes there's a good legitimate reason to do it, and we've done it, uh, sought that, and, and had that, you know, that sort of sentence, not that period of time necessarily. But um, that's another way of prohibiting somebody from driver driving without it being a driving prohibition and a prohibition showing up on their driving record, for example. Well, I, I think from the perspective of like a practicing lawyer, the important thing to take from this case is the lack of certainty. Because you may, relying on the you know strength of Boily from the Ontario Court of Appeal, want to plead your client to the criminal negligence offense, recognizing that they might benefit from no driving prohibition. Lots of lots of clients would happily take a criminal record, would happily even serve a short jail sentence to not lose their license. And the uncertainty that this now creates for somebody when pleading about which law is going to be followed in their province. I mean, Saskatchewan's going to follow Saskatchewan law and Ontario's going to follow Ontario law, but other provinces? That uncertainty is terrifying, especially when you're making those compromises. Well, the certainly the one from Saskatchewan is going to be appealed to the Supreme Court of Canada. Um, the Crown's going to want to know uh, uh, the defen it? defense. Well, I but mean, is it the defendant would have to appeal that? Yeah, that's true. Um, but still, there'll be some lawyer in Saskatchewan who wants to know and is interested in doing it, and it's a good question. Um, so I would imagine that it will be appealed, uh, and uh, it'll be interesting. I mean, of course, the Supreme Court of Canada can just can just reject the appeal, uh, and that they can won't. be it. Uh, but they would probably hear that one. All right, Paul, it's yep. time. Nope. Ridiculous driver of the week. Sorry, I decided to. You did the introduction. That's fine. Yeah. I have the pre-recorded one, so. Yeah. The ridiculous driver of the week. The week, the week, the week, the week. A surprising bestseller? The pinpoint method of cross-examination is catching on. Law firms and new litigators across Canada have caught on to cross-examination the pinpoint method. Kyla Lee's straightforward handbook that teaches you effective cross-examination skills. Um, and this one reminds me of a person we used to know. Um, a Canadian truck driver arrested for trying to leave Michigan with 188 bricks of cocaine. So Michigan, for those who don't know, is a you know pretty common point of entry into Canada. Um, we had a friend who was dating somebody who came mm -hmm. across at Michigan all the time. 188 bricks of cocaine, this guy. 68-year-old uh, man, commercial truck driver from Brampton, drives through the primary inspection booth. He's got inconsistencies in the load. It doesn't seem to weigh what they expect it, they to, expect weigh. it to weigh. And, uh, yeah, they discover that he's got 188 bricks of cocaine concealed um, in the back of the car. And I'm, I'm always at a loss for when I see cocaine going across the border. Because I don't understand why you would take the risk of sending it across the border when you're a drug dealer and you think, okay, distribution. You can sell it probably for much the same price in Canada as the U.S. The issue is getting it into Canada or the U.S. out of wherever it was produced, right? Sure. And so why, you know, sometimes people get arrested bringing it into Canada in, you know, kilos, and sometimes people get arrested 
taken it to the states. I mean, you know, crossing the the same border, going both directions. And I guess it really comes down to uh, to whether or not you've got a distribution network and where you are. Somebody's making some decision about selling their unlawful product. Oh, I think anyway, if you were if you were a drug dealer and you had the choice of selling your cocaine in Canada versus selling your cocaine in the United States. You'd want to do it in Canada. Well, you're you're not going to go to jail for the rest of your life. Yeah, you do it in the United States, life sentence. And you do it in a state where there's three strikes rules, you could end up with the death penalty, right? Like, that's fucking scary. You do it in Canada, yeah, maybe you'd get, like, seven years. Fifteen years. Ten years, fifteen years in British Columbia. Heck, if you do it once and you clean your life up and turn things around, you may even get a suspended sentence, like... I don't know. Well, I, I think hundred, hundred, it's worth the risk to bring it across the border if you're looking at a different sentencing regime. Anyway, this driver, ridiculous driver though he is, um, might be completely innocent. I mean, you don't necessarily load your truck, right? That's part of the part of the issue. How many truck drivers load their trucks? I used to load trucks and I used to unload trucks. I've in my life I've had that job, and uh, I'll tell you, no truck driver knew what was necessarily loaded in the back. We used to pack in books of auto traders in big bins to get shipped from Edmonton to all over Saskatchewan. But isn't it your responsibility to verify the load? Are you going to stand there and watch the whole thing? That's not reasonable. That's not just not the way it works. We uh, we, we, we have a division of labor here. Uh, the person who uh, polishes the headlights at the end of the uh, assembly line isn't the same person who uh, is operating the, uh, the, the grinder that grinds out the cylinders on the car that you buy. Um, and isn't responsible for knowing that it's perfectly, you know, the but, engine is perfectly assembled. But you do have to do your pre-trip inspection, including recording the weight of your load and the distribution on the axles. Yeah. So the, you should know that those are inconsistent. And you do it by a calculation. This is what I've been told. This is, is on my load. This is my the math that's worked it out. And you get to the scale and find out that it's wrong, you should be going, well, okay, this is not consistent with the math that I've worked out mm-hmm. uh, based on what I've been told is in my truck. Anyway, I'm not, uh, I'm not assuming that this person is guilty, but the, the amount is ridiculous. There's no doubt about it. Yep. Ridiculous truck driver of the week. I mean, the only thing we can really say is don't drive cocaine across the border. Yep. <laughs> and Thankfully, there's always a ridiculous driver. If you are charged with a criminal negligence uh, offense in driving or uh, any other driving offense and you need to reach us, you can give us a call at 604-685-8889 or find us online at vancouvercriminallaw.com and tune in next week for another exciting episode of Driving Law.